Hello, this is Murder in the Mountains, and I'm your host, Karina Maynard. I'm so sorry that I have been MIA for the last couple of weeks, but, you know, life happens. I do this just as a hobby. I don't get paid for it. I mean, I wish I got paid for it, but I don't. Um, My oldest daughter, we were just given the great news that she is in remission from a type of cancer called Hodgkin lymphoma, and she just started her radiation therapy last week. Um, So we've been out of town in Cincinnati. On top of that, she got sick. My other two daughters got sick. It's just been a mess. It's been so hard on my mama heart, you know, but I've been trying to take care of everyone and, you know, keep everybody healthy. It's easier said than done, really. But aside from that, I did start the new Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix series that everybody is going so freaking crazy about. And I'm on episode four. I haven't gotten a chance to watch any more of it. But what I have watched is sickening. Oh my gosh. I I didn't expect it to, I don't know, be so disgusting. Like, I feel like everyone knows who Jeffrey Dahmer is, but nobody really has taken the time, or at least I never took the time to really read or, you know, watch anything about what he actually did. So... To see it, to hear it, oh, it's very disturbing. Very disturbing. This week's episode is going to be kind of similar to Jeffrey Dahmer, but different in a lot of ways. Different because this man, um, what sent him to prison was the murder of a 10-year-old girl. Now, his main, like, target preference was boys. Preferably young boys under the age of six. And he says at some point, you know, I have killed a child in every single state. Now, there's no proof of that. He could have been just boasting because he's a sick, vile person, or he was. Um, but I don't know. You'll just, you'll just have to listen. You'll just have to listen. If you can, I'm going to say listener discretion is advised. Please do not listen to this around your small children who can understand English. Like, I mean, if you got a baby in the car, what the fuck ever, they don't know what I'm talking about. But if you've got, like, a small kid that is going to know what any of this means, turn it off. Wait until you're in the car alone or taking a hot bath by yourself. Because it's going to get rough. Also, I just want to add that Evan Peters has done a great job, like, with this role. But honestly, just like so many other people on the internet, I am super worried about his mental health because Jeffrey Dahmer was, you know, a fucking psycho. And it's got to be so hard to, you know, put yourself in that role and pretend to be someone so awful. So I hope that he's okay. You know, everybody says, oh, well, he played in American Horror Story and that didn't fuck with him, you know, blah, blah, blah. Which American Horror Story was at times based on, well, loosely based on true events. But this is 100% true, not exaggerated. This is for real. Like this man really walked the earth and murdered these people. I just can't imagine. This case takes place in 1920s New York. But, 
first, we have to start in the late 1800s because that's where this all started. So let's talk about Albert Fish. Harold Howard Fish, that was his real name, better known as Albert Fish, was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19, 1870. His parents were Randall and Ellen Fish, and here's a fun fact. Randall, Albert's dad, was 43 years older than his mother, Ellen, so he was 75 when Albert was born. I didn't know that the swimmers still swam at that age, Jesus Christ, but anyway, he was the youngest child of four. He had two brothers and a sister. He wished to be called Albert instead of Harold to escape the nickname Ham and Eggs that he had gotten at an orphanage, which is where he spent the majority of his childhood. And we will get to that a little later. Albert's family had a history of mental illness and his uncle had mania. One of his brothers was in a state mental hospital. I don't know what for. I could not find any info on that. Um, one of his sisters was diagnosed with something that they called mental affliction back then. And three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses and his mother had oral and or visual hallucinations. So Randall dies, Albert's dad. Ellen is too mentally unstable and not financially stable to take care of these kids. So she sends them to live in an orphanage. Albert goes to one in Washington. At this orphanage, he has seen horrible things. Children are beaten, you know, abused, and he is one of them. So he's frequently abused, and it just really fucks with his head. I believe that this is where it all started. I mean, I'm not sure, but this is the earliest, like, bad thing that I could find that happened to him. He was beaten so frequently that he actually started to enjoy the physical pain that he was enduring. In the 1880s, his mom had gotten on her feet and bagged herself a government job. Hell yeah, queen. And she brought him home. By 1882, at the age of 12, a relationship blossomed with a telegraph boy. Now, this telegraph boy, this little creature, introduced Albert to some disgusting things. And forgive me if I say these big words wrong, but he introduced Albert to urolagnia. That is drinking piss. And coprophagia, which is eating shit. What the fuck is wrong with these kids? I know it's like the 1800s, but there's got to be better things to do. Like play, I don't know, pick up sticks, play jacks, marbles. Were those invented in this time? I don't know. Albert began frequently visiting public baths where he could watch other boys undress. And throughout his life, he would write disgusting, obscene letters to women who he had found in classified ads in the newspaper and matrimonial agencies. Hey, that kind of sounds like our guy from episode one, if you remember, the Lonely Hearts Killer. By 1890, at age 20, Albert moved to the Big Apple, New York, there, he became involved in male prostitution, and he began molesting and raping young boys, mostly younger than six years old, mentally disabled, or African-American. He is sick. And he says at one point that he targeted this 
specific group of young boys because he thought that these boys would most likely not be looked for, like no one would come looking for them. In 1898, Fish's mother arranged a marriage for him with Anna Mary Hoffman. I did not picture this man ever having a romantic relationship with a woman, honestly. But they had six kids together. Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry. In 1903, Albert was arrested for grand larceny, convicted, and incarcerated in Sing Sing Correctional Facility. This is a maximum security prison in New York where Albert would eventually meet his demise. Thank God. Several years later, around 1910, Albert was working in Wilmington, Delaware, when he met a 19-year-old named Thomas Kedden. Okay, warning. This is where it's going to get kind of sick and twisted, like even worse than it already is. He took Thomas to where he was staying, and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. Now, this just means that they each get sexual pleasure from giving and receiving pain or humiliation. You've probably heard it called S&M. Um, like the Rihanna song, you know, S, 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 and M, M, M. But this is not like a fun, quirky thing like she makes it out to be. It's not certain whether or not Albert forced Tom and Thomas sorry, to do these things, but his confession implies that Thomas was intellectually disabled. After 10 days of knowing Thomas, Albert took him to an old farmhouse where he tortured him over a period of two weeks. Poor Thomas. I could not imagine. Albert eventually tied Thomas up and cut off half of his penis. And Albert at one point recalls, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. How awful. Poor Thomas. He originally intended to kill Thomas, cut up his body, and take it home. But he was worried that the hot weather would draw attention to him. You know, like, he was worried that Thomas's body would begin to stink, and people would be like, oh my god, what does that smell? And then become suspicious. So he poured peroxide over Thomas's wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left him a $10 bill, and kissed Thomas goodbye. He says, took the first train I could get back home, never heard what became of him, or tried to find out. He just, like, has a total disregard for anyone and everyone. In January 1917, Albert's wife left him for a handyman that she had met. Thank God she got away from that. But she left because his mental issues were just too much for her to handle. At least that's what I had read. But she left all of the kids. She left all of the kids. She was like, fuck this, I'm out. He began to have auditory hallucinations. And he once wrapped himself in a carpet, saying that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. It was around this time that he began to indulge in self-harm by embedding needles into his groin and abdomen. After his arrest, x-rays revealed that Albert had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. And I actually have a um, picture of this x-ray. I'm going to post it on the Murder in the Mountains Facebook page so you can see. It's, it's really disturbing, actually. He also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle and inserted wool covered with lighter fluid into his anus and sat it on fire. 
What the hell is wrong with this man? Sticking needles up his penis and shoving wool on fire up his ass. I I don't know. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna say anything else about it. What the fuck? During 1924, 54-year-old Albert was suffering from psychosis and felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate these kids that he was preying on. So on July 11th, 1924, Albert found an eight-year-old girl named Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm in Staten Island. He offered her money to come and help him look for rhubarb, and she was just about to leave when her mother caught Albert and chased him away. And he left, but that idiot returned and tried to hide in the barn, like in the family barn, and sleep until Beatrice's dad found him. Thank God for her parents. Or little Beatrice, it's hard to tell what would have come of her. On May 25th, 1928, Albert saw a classified advertisement in the Sunday edition of the New York World. This advertisement read, Young man, 18, wishes position in the country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. On May 28th, Albert, then 58 years old, visited the Budd family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward. He later confessed that he had a plan all along to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. Ugh. Albert introduced himself as Frank Howard. He introduced himself as a farmer from Farmingdale, New York. So he has created this, like, alias to trick this family. He promised to hire their son and his friend. His friend's name is Willie. And he said that he would send for them in a few days. Well, he didn't. He didn't show up. He didn't, you know, send a message, nothing. But eventually, he sends a telegram to the Bud family, and he apologizes, and he sets a later date. When he returned, he did not meet Edward. He met Edward's younger sister, Grace Bud, and at this time, she is 10 years old. So this is where he shifts his intentions towards Grace, and he quickly makes up a story about having to attend his niece's birthday party, and he somehow convinces her parents to let her go. So they leave, and he takes her to an abandoned house that he had previously picked out to use for the murder of his next victim, which was supposed to be her brother Edward. And this little house is later called Wisteria Cottage. There, he murdered her and ate her. But he wasn't even caught until a while later, so much later that the police actually had focused on someone else for this murder. They arrested 66-year-old Superintendent Charles Edward Pope on September 5th, 1930 as a suspect in her disappearance. And he was accused by his ex-wife. I don't know why. Maybe she was just feeling kind of spiteful, you know, that she's his ex-wife, she's like, to hell with you. Or maybe he was into some shady stuff. Maybe that's why they divorced, and she thought, oh my God, he probably did it. Either way, he didn't do it, but he spent 108 days in jail between his arrest and trial on December 22, 1930, where he was found not guilty. Four years after his trial, 
in November 1934, an anonymous letter was sent to Grace's parents, which ultimately led the police to Albert. Mrs. Budd was illiterate and could not read the letter for herself, so she had her son read it to her. And I could only imagine what this was like for Edward to have to read this letter to his mother. I mean, for him to have to read it, for her to have to hear it, I, it's awful. It's disgusting. So I have what the letter says, and it's unaltered. Um, so there are misspellings. There are grammatical errors. So if I, if I fuck up, just cut me a break, okay? It's probably missing, it's probably missing a period or a comma or something's misspelled. Okay? Okay. It says, <clears throat> Dear Mrs. Budd, In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted to cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven. All of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next. He went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often how good f human flesh was. I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you a pot, cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all of my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take her meat to my rooms, cook it, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have, had I wished. She died a virgin. How awful. That is by far one of the worst things that I have ever read in my entire life. 
this poor baby girl, 10 years old, her parents let her go to a birthday party with a man that they just met, mind you. She's picking wildflowers outside of the house when he calls her in, and he does this, I don't even know how to, this disgusting thing to her, that poor baby. Police investigated this letter, and the story concerning Captain Davis and the famine in Hong Kong could not be verified, but the part of the letter concerning the murder of Grace, however, was found to be accurate in its description of the kidnapping and subsequent events, although it was impossible to confirm whether or not he had actually eaten parts of her body. But, I mean, they never found her body. They found some bones. They never found, like, her actual... I mean, I would not put it past him. He said he ate it. I'm sure he did. Fish's trial for the murder of Grace Budd began on March 11th, 1935 in White Plains, New York. Frederick P. Close presided as a judge and Westchester County Chief Assistant District Attorney Albert F. Gallagher was prosecuting attorney. Albert's defense counsel was James Dempsey, a former prosecutor and the one-time mayor of Peaksville, oh, sorry, Peekskill, New York. The trial lasted for 10 days. I'm honestly surprised that it lasted that long, but you know that this man is going to plea insanity. Like, oh, I'm crazy. I didn't mean to eat these kids, but he did. Um, well, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know how someone could be that evil, you know? So, he did plea insanity, and he claimed to have heard voices from God telling him to kill these children. Several psychiatrists testified about his sexual fetishes, which included so many different things. Sadism, masochism, cannibalism, um, the eating the shit, drinking the pee, pedophilia, necrophilia, so many more. Now, Dempsey, in his summation, noted that Albert was a psychiatric phenomenon and that nowhere in legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. The defense's chief expert witness was Frederick Wertham, a psychiatrist with an emphasis on child development who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York criminal courts. During two days of his testimony, he explained that Albert's obsession with religion and specifically his preoccupation with the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac, and this, it notes it as Genesis 22, 1 through 24, if you want to check that out. Wortham said that Albert believed that similar, similarly, sacrificing a boy would be penance for his own sins and that even if the act itself was wrong, Angels would prevent it if God did not approve. Now, that is not true. That is not true. I mean, obviously, all the all my Christian people out there, you know that is not true. He's just using this, okay? I don't even know what this like this is called. Like he's like twisting this religion, like for his own benefit. Albert attempted the sacrifice once before, but was thwarted when a car drove past. Edward Budd was his next intended victim, but he turned out to be larger than expected, so he settled on Grace. Although he knew Grace was female, it's believed that Albert perceived her as a boy. 
I guess because, you know, at 10 years old, little girls do have a boyish figure. And so maybe that's why he didn't mind that she was a girl. Wortham then detailed Albert's cannibalism, which in his mind, he associated with communion. Now, if you don't know anything about Christianity, um, you should probably look up communion. I don't really know how to explain it that well. I mean, I could try, but I would probably get it wrong. But basically, you eat a little cracker or like some pita or something, drink some grape juice or some wine like every year at communion at your church. You know, the bread represents the body of Christ. The wine or grape juice represents his blood. It's this whole thing. Last question Dempsey asked Wortham was 15,000 words long, and it detailed Fish's life and ended with asking how the doctor considered his mental condition based on this life. Wortham simply answered, he is insane. Well, yeah, no shit, buddy. I could have told you that. Gallagher cross-examined Wortham on whether Albert knew the difference between right and wrong, and he responded that he did know but that it was a perverted knowledge based on his opinions of sin, atonement, and religion, and thus was an insane knowledge. And that's in quotations, insane knowledge. The defense called two more psychiatrists to support Wortham's findings. The first of four rebuttal witnesses was Minas Gregory, the former manager of Bellevue Hospital, where Albert was treated during 1930. Apparently, at some point, in 1930, um, he was detained, or maybe not detained, I'm not sure. He was checked into this hospital because he was having some mental issues. He testified that Albert was abnormal but sane. Under cross-examination, Dempsey asked if coprophilia and urophilia and pedophilia indicated a sane or insane person. Gregory replied, that such a person was not, in quotations, mentally sick, and that these were common perversions that were socially perfectly all right, and that Albert was no different from millions of other people, some very prominent and successful who had the very same perversions. So you're trying to tell me that there are, there are a bunch of other people in this world at this time, prominent successful people who do these kind of things, so that makes it okay? I think not. The next witness was the resident physician at the Tombs, Perry Lichtenstein. Dempsey objected to a doctor with no training in psychiatry testifying on the issue of sanity, but Justice Close overruled this on the basis that the jury could decide what weight to give a prison doctor. So because he's a prison doctor, this other guy is like, no, your opinion does not matter. When he's asked whether um, Albert's causing himself pain indicated a mental condition, Lichtenstein replied, that is not masochism, as he was only punishing himself to get sexual gratification. The next witness, Charles Lambert, testified that coprophilia was a common practice and that religious cannibalism may be psychopathic but was a matter of taste and not evidence of a psychosis. What are these people talking about? Like, they're, are they, like, condoning this right now? Like, my mind is literally blown. 
The last witness, James Vavasour, repeated Lambert's opinion. Another defense witness was Mary Nichols. So, all I could find was that this was Albert's 17-year-old stepdaughter, but I don't see anything about him getting remarried except for he was married to one woman for a week after his divorce with his first wife. So, I don't know where this girl comes into play, and I'm sorry, but she gives a testimony, so that's important. She describes how Albert taught her and her brothers and sisters several games involving overtones of masochism and child molestation. None of the jurors doubted that Albert was insane, but ultimately, as one later explained, they felt that he should be executed anyway. Yeah, that, I believe so. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is nuts, and even if he's not nuts, he should still be. You know what I'm saying? They found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge sentenced um, Albert to death by electrocution. Albert arrived at prison in March 1935 and was executed on January 16, 1936 in the electric chair at Sing Sing. And I will post a picture of this. It was called Old Sparky, which I think a lot of electric chairs in different prisons all over the U.S. were called Old Sparky. Um, but anyway, that was this one's name too. He entered the chamber around 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in the Sing Sing Prison Cemetery, and he is said to have helped the executioner position the electrodes on his body. His last words were, reportedly, I don't even know why I'm here. That just lets you know that he, he had no remorse. He didn't care. According to one witness who was present, it took two jolts of electricity before he died, creating the rumor that the apparatus was short-circuited by the needles that he had inserted into his body. These rumors were later regarded as untrue, and he reportedly died in the same fashion and time frame as others had in the electric chair. At a meeting with reporters after the execution, his lawyer, James Dempsey, revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement. This amounted to several pages of handwritten notes that Albert apparently penned, like he apparently wrote these in the hours prior to his death, like just before he died. And when he was asked by these journalists to reveal the documents, he refused. He said, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities, sorry, obscenities that I have ever read. In the end, only three children, including Grace, would be concretely proven to be his victims. The Grace Bud murder was by far the most infamous of his crimes, but two other murders were linked to him after his arrest. According to Crime Museum, Albert is believed to be responsible for the murder of a four-year-old boy named Billy Gaffney. Billy had disappeared while playing with a neighbor in Brooklyn on February 11, 1927. And the neighbor boy who was playing with Billy, whose name was also Billy, would later tell police that the boogeyman took Billy. The three-year-old boy described this boogeyman as a slender, elderly man with gray hair and a gray mustache. 
At first, cops didn't take the child seriously because, you know, he's only three. But when they searched all over the neighborhood with no clues, they finally realized that he had been abducted. He was never seen again. But after Albert's arrest, a motorman on a Brooklyn trolley line came forward to identify him as a nervous old man that he saw on the same day Billy had disappeared. Apparently, the old man was trying to quiet a little boy sitting next to him on the trolley who was crying for his mother. The man then dragged the little boy off of the trolley. Albert admitted to kidnapping and murdering Billy in sickening detail. He said, I took tools a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle. Cut one of my belts in half. Slit these halves in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held out my mouth to his body and drank his blood. Oh my gosh. Another poor, poor, poor baby. And so Billy and Grace are only two that it's proven that he, you know, murdered them and mutilated them. So here's the third. In 1924, a young boy named Francis McDonald vanished while playing with his brother and a group of friends on Staten Island. His body was found in the woods shortly thereafter. He had been strangled by his own suspenders. Shortly before Albert was put to death, he confessed to being the one who lured Francis into the woods, later assaulting and strangling him. He admitted that he was ready to dismember the boy, but he heard someone coming and he fled the scene. So that's the third. Three kids who... He for sure murdered, but he brags about how he has killed a child in every state. Now, is that true? I'm not sure. Would I put it past him? No. What a real piece of work. I mean, I really don't even know what to say about this story. I told you, I warned you, it was pretty gnarly, pretty pretty awful. And like I said earlier, in my own opinion, I believe that this was you know, just as, if not more, gruesome than Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer had many more victims that he's, you know, proven guilty of killing slash eating slash, you know, drugging, raping, etc. But I just, I don't know. I guess because these are such young, young kids, little babies, that it just really hits me in the feels even harder. Maybe just because I'm a mother and I have kids of my own. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. But it makes me sick to my stomach. But I hope that you got something out of this episode. Maybe something like there are real evil people in this world. Just like Jeffrey Dahmer. Just like Albert Fish. And they exist today in real time. We just don't see it all in the media and we don't see all of these, I mean, we don't see all of these people committing these crimes. But one day, I'm sure, you know, there will be news coverage on things just as awful as these. And that's sad. It's awful. So this is just a reminder. Always be aware 
Be vigilant. Don't talk to strangers. Don't trust a stranger. And like Bailey Sarian says, you know, make good choices. Grace's parents did not make a good choice. With that being said, I don't have anything else for you guys for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you got something out of it. Like, you know, watch your back. Don't talk to strangers. Don't trust strangers. Everything like that. You know, common sense. Don't send your kid off to a birthday party with some crazy old man. And I hope that you have a great rest of the week. I'm going to go home this weekend and just decompress. Just lay in my own bed. I cannot wait to sleep in my own bed, cook my own food, be in my house. Be sure to check out the Murder in the Mountains Facebook page for some interesting pictures um, that go along with this episode. And leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Share, you know, hashtag Murder in the Mountains. Do what you do. Give me a like. I would greatly appreciate it. I would love to see this podcast grow. So far, I have listeners in the U.S., South Korea, New Zealand, and I just think that is so great. I would love for everyone in the world to hear it.